Hey friends, welcome back to an all new season of Murder on the Map that I plan to launch just in time for spooky season. I'm your host Taylor and if you are an existing listener or if you're coming back after my super long hiatus, thank you so much for sticking around, for your patience, for hitting me up being like, are we going to have new episodes? Are you okay? What's going on? Thank you so much. I really appreciate each and every one of you and the fact that you guys continued to re-listen to the show and everything, even when there wasn't new content, I really, really appreciate it. If you are a new listener, welcome. I'm really excited that you're here. And just so you know, each week on my show, I will tell you a cold case, a bizarre story, a haunted story, a missing person, anything like that, all true crime stuff. And yeah, This originally started as a project during the quarantine, and I was consuming so much true crime content that I was like, you know what? I think I could do this myself. I'm hearing the same stories over and over, and that is one thing with Murder on the Map is that I promise you that you will never hear a Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Golden State Killer, uh, Lacey Peterson, anything that has just been done over and over Um, Those stories are important. Those victims deserve to have their stories heard, but I don't think that those killers need any more glorification in the media. So what I like to do is tell stories of lesser-known crimes, um, lesser-known cases and hauntings and things like that. So on today's episode, I have something a little bit different because it is a solved case and actually nobody died. Um... So yeah, it's kind of a bizarre one. It has been in pop culture a little bit, referenced in, I think, season four of Friends. But it's a pretty wild story, definitely falls in the bizarre category, and I'm excited to share it with all of you. So before we get into it, will you please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, um, text a friend, and say Murder on the Map is back. And yeah, let's get into it after the break. suburban Massapequa, Long Island was known for Italian restaurants, big hair beauty parlors, sprawling malls, and lavish cookouts in Oyster Bay. But in May of 1992, it became known for a teenager who fell in love with a middle-aged man and brutally shot his wife in a jealous rage. Amy Elizabeth Fisher was born in Merrick, New York, on Long Island, to Elliot and Roseanne Fisher in August of 1974. She attended Kennedy High School in Belmore, New York, and all of her neighbors when they were interviewed said that she was a sweet girl and was often seen around the neighborhood walking her dog Muffins. When Amy was 16, she went with her dad to take the family Cadillac into an auto body shop, and there she met 38-year-old owner of the shop, Joey Buttafuoco. It must have been lust at first sight for Amy because she would later admit that she was intentionally damaging her own Dodge Daytona to take into the shop for minor cosmetic work after several accidents. To me, that's absolutely insane. I hate anything to do with car drama, 
And looking at pictures of Joey, I don't know what a 16-year-old girl would want with him. After she kept going there on purpose to see him and obviously giving him work, the two quickly began an 18-month affair. Amy became increasingly jealous of Joey's wife and his two kids, so she devised a plot to take care of the situation. With the assistance of Peter Gawenti, a Brooklyn auto supply salesman, Amy obtained a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Then on May 19, 1992, Amy went to the Buttafuoco home near the Biltmore Shore Beach Club. She walked onto the stoop holding the gun and knocked on the door. When Joey's wife, Mary Jo, answered the door, Amy told her a made-up story that Joey was having an affair with Amy's younger sister, who didn't exist. She also provided a t-shirt that advertised Joey's auto body shop as proof. The conversation lasted about 15 minutes, during which Mary Jo became increasingly angry. She finally told Amy to leave, and she turned around to go back inside. Amy then took out the gun, struck Mary Jo twice with it, and then shot her in the head. Amy dropped both the shirt and the gun and started to run to the car where Peter was waiting as her getaway driver, turned around, grabbed the shirt and the gun, and got in the car, and they drove away. Of course, neighbors heard all of this and saw the commotion, and so they called 911. Mary Jo was rushed to the hospital and operated on for most of the night, and although doctors couldn't remove the bullet, they were able to save her life. When interviewed by police, Joey told them that Amy could be the shooter. The next day, Mary Jo regained consciousness and was able to identify Amy from a photo. Amy was arrested and charged with attempted murder. In a case that homicide detective Daniel Servan called one of the, quote, most bizarre in years, tabloids were drawn into the sensationalism that tore the middle-class family apart and dissected the sexual escapades of the teenage bad girl and basically a middle-aged knucklehead. When Amy entered her not guilty plea in front of a jury in Nassau County Court in September 1992, prosecutor Fred Klein said that Amy's father had described her as, quote, totally uncontrollable in a missing persons report from 1991. I looked everywhere on the internet and was not able to find a missing persons report, but take that with a grain of salt. It was 1991, like 32 years ago, so not going to be able to find everything. Lawyers painted Amy as a lovesick teenager, a beeper-wearing prostitute, which is personally my favorite way she was described, who planned the murder of Mary Jo in a jealous rage. Klein said to call her a high school girl was, quote, as accurate as calling John Gotti a businessman in New York. Judge Marvin Goodman ordered Amy held on a $2 million bail. Amy's lawyer, Eric Nyberg, a frustrated actor and former vibrating bed salesman, I swear to God, this is how these people are described, I'm not making this up, her lawyer argued that if Amy was a prostitute, then Joey was her pimp and he was, quote, a Teflon bum who preyed on the teenage girl. Nyberg then offered the rights to Amy's story to raise bail money. He was quoted as saying, usually people in this situations, the Mike Tysons, the Kennedys, have significant financial assets of their own. Amy Fisher happens to be a high school student. Her only asset is her story. Though television tabloids shows like Hard Copy and The Mari Povich Show declined to talk with Amy, Hollywood producers staked out courthouse grounds in a race to turn the crime story into a TV movie that was an increasingly popular genre at the time. Amy was later released from jail, securing the bail money, partly from a television production company. 
Mary Jo, with the bullet lodged in her neck near her spine, also landed a TV deal for a movie of her own to pay for her medical bills. Back on the middle-class street of Berkeley Lane, Amy's family drew their blinds to avoid packs of TV crews. Her parents wanted basically nothing to do with any of it. Her friends agreed not to talk to the media, but her neighbors opened their mouths as soon as the cameras came around, and they told varying stories describing Amy as everything from a prostitute or, quote, the polite little girl um, walking her dog muffins around the neighborhood, like I said at the beginning of the podcast. It was just everybody wanted their 15 minutes of fame, it sounds like. During initial court proceedings, a current affair broadcast home video supposedly showing Amy having sex with a John. A man who lived down the street told Geraldo Rivera that Amy showed him pornographic pictures of her ex-boyfriends. That claim was never substantiated. In June 1992, Amy's lawyer filed a statutory rape complaint accusing Joey of initiating the affair when Amy was only 16 years old. The next month, Amy pleaded guilty to shooting Mary Jo in the face to avoid the potential of a lengthy trial. In court, Amy was quoted saying, I went to the doorstep with a loaded gun in my pocket. I hit her in the back of the head. I hit her again, and the gun went off. Three days after copying the deal and pleading guilty to reckless assault, Amy overdosed on prescription drugs and was admitted to Huntington Hospital. Her lawyer said the bottom fell out when his client saw a hard copy broadcast of a secretly taped video of her visiting her boyfriend, 30-year-old Long Island gym owner, Paul Makeley, the night before the plea, offering him oral sex and asking him to marry her. In the video, she's quoted saying, I want my name in the press because I can make a lot of money. I figure if I have to go through all this pain and suffering, I'm at least going to get a Ferrari. Police said that Amy, quote, hated Mary Jo so much and that she had talked to two of her ex-boyfriends about killing the mother of two. Peter Gawenti, the 21-year-old getaway driver that I mentioned earlier, was arrested and eventually sentenced to six months in jail for selling Amy the gun and also driving her to the Botafogo house in his Ford Thunderbird. The Fisher-Buttafuoco story played out in the tabloids every day for months. It became a punchline from everywhere to Saturday Night Live, to In Living Color, to David Letterman. David Letterman would actually be able to squeeze laughs out of his crowd by simply muttering Buttafuoco to his late-night audience. Joey tried to gain a little sympathy and called Howard Stern to say that he was faithful to his wife. When Howard Stern asked about a report that Amy had been seen at the Buttafuoco house at the time of the affair, Joey denied it ever happened. He was quoted saying, that's insane. When my kids heard that report where she claims that my kids called her Aunt Amy, my son who's 12 went nuts. When Howard asked, so you're claiming the papers are lying when they call you Amy's lover? Absolutely yes, Joey replied. While in Huntington Hospital, Amy was on suicide watch when she met with an NBC screenwriter working with KLM, the Long Island production company that bought her story rights. But in November 1992, Amy, who was then freed on bail, asked Judge Goodman to sentence her to prison one month earlier than scheduled. Her home was being staked out by reporters, and she couldn't even go into a restaurant without people jumping up to call the media. In early December, Judge Goodman sentenced her to up to a maximum of 15 years, describing her shooting of Mary Jo like, quote, a wild animal that stalks its prey, motivated by lust and passion. After that came the onslaught of made-for-TV movies. That month, NBC aired Amy Fisher, My Story. 
In January 1993, CBS presented Casualties of Love, the Long Island Lolita story starring Alyssa Milano, and ABC showed the Amy Fisher story featuring a teenage Drew Barrymore. Later that year, Joey went to court dressed in, quote, a dark blue suit, a flamboyant floral tie, and his signature black and white snakeskin cowboy boots. This is the first time that he admitted to having an affair with Amy. The Nassau County District Attorney, Dennis Dillon, said that he would not pursue charges since Amy was an unreliable witness, but he changed his mind when Joey's former employees told law enforcement that he had bragged about having sex with the then 16-year-old girl. He ended up serving five months for statutory rape while Amy was released in 1999. Shockingly, at least to me when I was researching this, Joey and Mary Jo remained married until 2003. Joey went on to be kind of a joke in pop culture. He was referenced on an episode of Friends in season four where Joey is talking about um, the bad Joeys and hurting the name. Um, he also participated in celebrity boxing, and he actually reunited with Amy at the lingerie bowl in 2006 for the coin toss. He also remarried in 2005. Mary Jo went on to have facial reanimation procedures, appear on the Oprah Winfrey show, and write a book telling her story called Getting, Through it, my, Getting it Through My Thick Skull, Why I Stayed What I Learned and What Million People Involved with Sociopaths Need to Know. Mary Jo is still paralyzed on one side of her face and deaf in one ear. She also remarried in 2012, but unfortunately her new husband died of cancer in 2018. After her release from prison, Amy became a columnist for the Long Island Press. Her biography, If I Knew Then, was published in 2004 and became a New York Times bestseller. In 2003, she got married and the couple had three children before divorcing in 2015. In 2006, Amy reunited with Mary Jo on Entertainment Tonight. Amy said during that appearance that she wanted to heal and move on with her life. However, two years later, she was quoted saying that she felt no sympathy for Mary Jo with absolutely no context for that quote. In 2007, Amy's husband sold a sex tape of them to the media. Amy went on to embrace her life as an adult entertainer, and as of 2022, Amy is still working as a webcam model. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Murder on the Map. Like I said at the beginning, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Text a friend, post on Instagram, just share the word that we are back with a new season because I am really excited to be here. You can follow me on Instagram at, at TaylorBTalks or email me at murderonthemap at gmail.com if you have any cases or stories you want to hear on this podcast. Or I actually got hit up asking if I needed a co-host. If you would like to come on and co-host an episode of Murder on the Map, definitely into that idea too. So hit me up with your ideas. If you are listening to this episode, The Hearsay just launched their first full-length album uh, called Be There Next Someday. You can stream that on Spotify and they are so, so, so good. So definitely check them out. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back next week with an all new episode, uh, keeping this thing going all spooky season long. And I hope to see you around. Stay safe, friends.